0: It's the bottomless pit of cash. So does it really matter?
1: Hello there and welcome back to the Sports Pro podcast for our first podcast of 2023. I hope those listening have had a wonderful festive break. Happy New Year. I hope you're rested and raring to go for everything that 2023 has to bring. My name is George Breer, Senior Content Manager here at Sports Pro in this week to kick off my my podcasting year i'm delighted to be joined by sam carp and tom bassett from the Sportsboro editorial team how are you both and how are your christmases very good thanks george i see you've
0: added senior to your title for uh for 2023 well-deserved little promotion for you there i say
1: thank you very much it's a, a new year new me sam how how was your christmas
2: yeah good thanks mate over very quickly as always seems to be i don't know about you but i found it A lot harder getting out of bed this morning, but ready and raring to hashtag go
1: again for 2023. Yeah, it certainly was a bit of a bit of a tricky start this morning. Now, before we get going, uh, I did want to ask you both any New Year's resolutions for you this year?
2: Lester Liveroo is my one. <laughs> Realised uh, November and December especially spent far too much on that platform. This isn't advertising either, um, I should clarify, but um, <laughs> but I think that's that's my one first and foremost.
0: Mine is to go to the dentist more. Not an, exactly an enjoyable experience, but um, fortunately this is a an audio platform and not too much of a visual platform so uh yeah the, the Nashers could do with uh, a bit more love and care in 2023 when was the last time you went to the dentist let's not uh let's not revisit
1: that i i, I was wondering whether that was prompted by a few uh, nasty dms on the back of some of the social clips tom but uh clearly not <laughs> uh
0: no just vanity on my behalf <laughs>
1: nice well good to hear it well we will be checking in to, on those resolutions i want your new pearly whites glistening at me next time you record tom what's and, yours uh, george well mine is uh, i don't know if anyone else has been uh, in the similar vein but I, uh, I binge watched uh limitless the new chris hemsworth series uh, on disney plus where he basically tries out various challenges in the aim of achieving longevity now whilst longevity probably isn't my primary goal at the moment hopefully i've got a few years uh, ahead of me before i need to worry about that stuff but i did enjoy some of the the physical challenges he undertook so mine actually is to have a, a freezing cold shower every day for two minutes um i'll oh, go full wim hof yeah exactly i'm gonna try and ease off the liver etc that i know is often associated with <laughs> with with cold showers but give it a go it's meant to improve mental health physical health and and uh, maybe i'll live forever uh, we can
2: only hope today. So. Someone's got to host the pod in a hundred
1: years, mate. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Twenty-two yeah, hundred. Uh, welcome back to the Sports <laughs> Pro Podcast for our, for our second century of recording. Anyway, talking of uh, talking of, you know. New Year's uh, resolutions and and important things for the year ahead. I know tomorrow, um, on the 6th of January, we are releasing the 10 sports influencers uh, or the sports business influencers for the upcoming year. You've both had quite an important part in that feature. But Sam, can you give us a little bit of insight into what that feature is and what it seeks to achieve? A little bit of what it says on the tin, to be honest.
2: It's uh, an annual feature we publish at the start of every year. Not actually sure how long we've been doing it for, but it's been as long as I've been at the company. So at least five years now, basically what we do is pick out and profile 10 individuals who who we think are going to be shaping the industry conversation over the coming 12 months. It's not always necessarily just about those individuals. It's kind of, it's about the trends, the events, the deals, the organizations that they represent and are going to be involved in. So As we'll sort of find out over the next half an hour, 40 minutes or so, the list covers everything from geopolitics to women's sports, as well as things like the metaverse, major events, streaming, motorsport, collective bargaining loads of stuff in there as is always the case with predictions some of these will probably turn out to be fairly village shouts you usually get one or two leaving their role within about a week or two of <laughs> publishing the list so to those who are on it please don't do that this year and be much appreciated but um but yeah, hopefully it paints a fairly comprehensive picture of what's to come in, in 2023.
1: Well, those who listened to the previous Sportswear podcast, which was our end of year quiz, be hoping that our two our two guests this week remember the names a bit more clearly because I know there were some some recall issues, particularly with you, Tom, for last year's list.
0: Yeah, let's not go back into the quiz, George. It's still a painful memory. And uh, I don't know if anyone saw the the images of the costume that I had to wear for, for the Sportswear's Christmas party. It was definitely a, a challenge. I don't want to be
1: losing. Next year, a, a costume that's gone a uh If I, I'm right in saying so, maybe you've been stashing it away so uh, you don't have to wear well, it in future. Or Sam that has to wear it in future. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's dive into into the list. Um, we'll, we'll look at all ten names in due course, but the first name was one that I think highlights your point clearly, Sam, which is not just about the people but the organisations and the industry segments that they represent. And that that person's Jane Fernandez, so that's the chief operating officer for the Australian aspect of the 2023 FIFA Women's World Cup. So Sam, why did she make the list this year and what are some of the interesting aspects of her entry? Yeah, there
2: are a number of um, individuals associated with this event who you probably could have included. But um, I think Fernandez felt pretty fitting given that she has been widely credited as one of the individuals who played a really really big part in in bringing this event to australia she was the general manager of football australia's bid team that secured the tournament so has been involved in it from the very beginning and will obviously play an extremely big part in its delivery and i think if you look back at last year you had the the women's euros in the uk which was delivered records again from from every tangible measure in terms of terms of audience numbers in terms of attendance the number of sponsors involved as well so going into this year with the 2023 fifa women's world cup uh taking place in the southern hemisphere you know people are going to expect to see that again um and you know i think Fernandez's role in that is going to be crucial. Um, so Australia will be hosting more than half of the games. As we know, it, it's a country where I think you'd probably say that women's sport in particular is a little bit more mature than in others, uh, not just in football, but also in other sports such as netball, cricket. It's really set the sta- It really set the standard a few years ago when it hosted the Women's T20 World Cup. So I think the expectation is going to be that they deliver another similar occasion in a few months' time. And and that you know it's essentially another record-breaking event for fifa for women's football and kind of serves as another another landmark in that in that kind of journey that it's on at the moment
1: it's an interesting and obviously relevant point of that 2022 has been seen rightly as as a very large turning point in the growth of women's sport and this World Cup is an important next milestone in how to consolidate and build on, on that. Um, Tom, do you see any challenges with time zones? Um, obviously being down under, obviously a location where women's sport and women's football in particular has matured significantly over the last 12 months. How do you see that impacting the tournament?
0: I think, I think it'd be hard to get away from the fact that it's going to be a tournament for hardcore audiences, I think. Um, the casual fan in Europe, at least, is going to have a real problem tuning in. Uh, at, the, at the times that the games will be on, I'm sure there'll be scheduling done to kind of manage some of that. But I, th- I think that should also play into the, the the conversation and the like the the discourse around like, the the impact of the tournament because you, you could end up with a tournament where you have a significantly or at least a, a lower uh, overall audience um, for the for the tournament in terms of the broadcast itself, um, just because of the fact that. I mean, you have got to think about the sort of main markets for or the big markets really driving uh, fandom in women's football right now, and that's without a doubt Europe and North America, which that will paint a challenge for for games kicking off in good time, in decent time times uh, time zones for uh, for the sort of Australian New Zealand audiences. So, I, th- I think as long as that's taken into consideration, uh, and we look at perhaps like the the impact locally, and maybe even the, like the impact. Sort of more more regionally in the Asian region, the APAC region, then then that's fine. But I think yeah, it probably just needs to be sort of taken within its context, especially when you're sort of setting it against maybe a men's tournament or a tournament in Europe where you can schedule games to to fit into more into bigger windows essentially for for audiences. Like it is going to be the middle of the night, or it is going to be extremely early mornings, and. And That will present a challenge for where the big, big
2: European and big North American
0: audiences are coming from.
2: I think on the flip side of that, I guess you could point out that this is also going to be the first tournament with thirty-two teams, up from twenty-four. So that's you know eight more nations that are going to be watching the event, which will hopefully boost those audience figures. Um, so you get some interest from there. And I guess, I guess the other point to make, and I think obviously something that Fernandez will have a really key role in is you know ensuring that those stadiums are full. I think. One of the big parts of the Women's Euros last year, especially in the knockout stages, was that kind of had an impact on how people perceive the tournament and how people continue to perceive women's football was the fact that, you know, we did see a full Wembley Stadium, we did see a full Bramall Lane. You know, it it changes people's perceptions of the tournament. So I think that's going to be really important in terms of the marketing that they do on the ground because Mm. it's also Australia and New Zealand, two countries a little bit more isolated than an event that's going to be held in Europe. You know, hopefully you'll get people traveling down from the APAC region to support their teams as well yeah I think that's where Fernandes up here play a really key role in terms of that on the ground marketing effort to to drum up local support for the tournament and get those kind of I feel like Australia is quite a similar market to the UK in the sense that you get big eventers and sort of casual observers who are really buy into a, into a major sporting event like mm-hmm. this so the kind of as long as they get the sort of marketing strategy right there then I think um they'll be able to kind of you know boost those attendance numbers and it'll also kind of have a positive impact on how the tournament is perceived on the back of it.
0: Yeah, I, ser- I certainly think there'll be a big push around the uh, the Matildas, especially with Sam Kerr playing in a home tournament. Massive draw. I think she was recently voted top five in like the the Guardian's annual women's football individual player rankings. And to have her playing at home uh, with a decent squad around her, chance of going deep in the tournament like that can only be a, that can only be a good benefit. Local interest will be, I think, massively key to this tournament, and as Sam said.
1: Fernandez will have a role to play there Tom you mentioned that the Europe and the US drive a lot of that fandom but I guess it's also equally important right that we don't allow the the more mature women's sports um, markets just to run away and that actually there's not the creation of a very strong two-tiered system which is the traditional sporting markets for women's sport just grow and grow and grow at extreme pace and then leave the APAC region or, or leave the Australian region far behind. It's important recognition with tournaments like this.
0: Women's football in Australia is really strong. Like it, it it's that is a that is a strong that is a stronghold for the for the game in particular. Um and to sort of talk about it in in to to yeah to discuss it as like a kind of like, oh well we need to make sure we don't leave it behind. Actually like it, it's got a lot to teach the rest of the world too. So um in terms of influence it probably goes beyond just this tournament and it will, uh, it will certainly feed into future women's World Cups, women's Euros, the North American tournaments, all of that kind of stuff. So it, there is, while there is definitely a sort of point to be made about this is used as a tool to like boost that side of it. We've also made to make sure that it, yeah, the 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 bigger markets, the European markets, the North American markets that we we more focus on probably at SportsPro than Australasia or Asiana, however do you want to phrase it. They, they've definitely got things to teach us too. Like these are these are big markets in
1: their own right, for sure. Well, Jane's inclusion on the list definitely for me prompted a, a look at another um, innovative business and innovative leader within the, the women's sports space, which was Julie Ehrman, um, co-founder and president at Angel City FC. Tom, have you been following the Angel City story? Yes, I have. Um, I am actually. I wouldn't like.
0: I wouldn't say go as far to say that I am a Angel City fan, but I picked them as my NWSL team to uh, to keep an eye on for their for their debut season. And like, I think what they've done as a as a newly launched franchise is like really really impressive uh, and also the way that they've kind of set out set out their stall as a, as a sports property is is a model that I think a lot of people in coming years will definitely be like will definitely be following their whole positioning is around purpose when it comes to their commercial relationships Um they've, they've managed to really really like successfully engage like a local NA, LA fan base which is like that's not that's not something that should be sniffed at like there's lots of sports teams in LA in lots of different places and the fact, that Angel City managed to uh, pull together another one in in a in a season and get the sort of impact that they have is is really impressive, and that probably speaks to the way that they've gone about it. So, just to kind of give an example of that, like each of their each of their partners, they all commit to doing community outreach work as part of their deals. Be that the, the shirt sponsor or be that like a, a lower tier partner, they all have to do something which contributes to the local LA community, and that will like. That will, without kind of fail, help engage certain people. If you're if you're doing that outreach as a club, even if it's not related to football, it's going to have an impact and raise your profile amongst amongst people in the local area. Which is,
1: yeah, as I said, really really difficult to do in LA. And Sam, that purpose has been matched by some pretty significant financial deals um, off the pitch as well. I know just one season old as a franchise, they've already secured more than forty million. Dollars in sponsorship revenue i know that they're valued at nearly 100 million us dollars so it's a, a significant valuation a significant move from a newly launched franchise is quite extraordinary i think it's a committed
2: sponsor revenue rather than
1: already secured sponsorship revenue right now but um
2: but yeah i mean it's all, all really impressive numbers um and if you look at the investor lineup it's the I suppose the mission that they've communicated from the outset has really appealed to a lot of high-profile investors. So they've got people like Billie Jean King on board, Christina Aguilera. And I actually met Julie Ehrman a lot at the back end of last year, and she is really impressive. She's quite a presence as well and is very authoritative, straight-talking, and, and just a really big advocate for women's sport and why people should be investing in it. And I think it's quite important to have that at the moment. You know, we can all talk about how why we think it's a good thing for people to be investing in women's sport but you still need people to be sort of outwardly applying that pressure in the way that Erman does in the public appearances that she's made in the interviews that she's done she's been really really bullish about about how big she believes it can get I think when I spoke to her she said something along the lines of how she believes the NWSL can, can become as big if not bigger than MLS which is you know based on the fact that Football is one of the most popular sports uh, for women in in North America, especially in terms of participation as well, I'd say. So there's no reason why that can't be the case. And I think there's just kind of, there's various things this year which will kind of bear that out. You know, she's spoken about how the NWSL possibly needs a better TV deal. Currently, it's spread across CBS and, and Twitch, maybe not that discoverable. So needs to be on more mainstream platforms. Maybe we'll even see Apple go for them this year put it alongside mls on that platform that's just a kind of wild guess but but you know yeah i think i think it's important to have people like Erman in the women's sports space at the moment as it's developing to kind of really state the case for it and i think also you know speaking about angel city and the model that she you know as as the president of that franchise has pretty much implemented i know there are other co-founders but she's been kind of the face of it the person who's been going out and carrying out that strategy and this is the success that they have had in just year one Um, you mentioned the numbers there George you know people are going to be looking at that investors in other sports teams in other women's sports leagues around the world they're going to be looking at that and wondering if it's something that they can kind of use as a template as they go about building their own clubs I mean I know that'll be difficult not everyone's based in LA not everyone has people like Billie Jean King as an investor in those kind of platforms but that kind of startup mentality that they've adopted um that community-driven approach doesn't necessarily have to be unique to angel city it's um there's something else that other women's sports teams can
1: can can feed into i think in particular i think it's that startup mentality that really sets it apart from other franchises it's not often you hear the word co-founder when it comes to sports properties and some of the other investors that are involved in the project or some of the fellow co-founders yes there's a very impressive list of celebrity investors but there's also names like kara Nortman and rachel newman um Who've both spoken with SportsPro over the last six months, but who have incredible entrepreneurial backgrounds, involvement in venture capital projects, significant experience and success with early stage ventures across technology, not just in the sports world. I think that really does stand the franchise in fantastic stead to to do things differently than has been done before. It's not just seeking to be you know, your average sports business that works along the same models that have worked for decades, it's actively looking to disrupt the space and to, I know, that, for instance, they're looking to create subsidiaries under the um, Angel City brand. So there really is an opportunity for the franchise, not just to be a successful on field sports property, but to be a wildly successful business alongside it. I think that's definitely something that's unique. Yeah, definitely. I think
2: um, it goes back to, I don't know if any of the listeners will remember, but uh, our colleague Michael Long wrote a fairly extensive report about a year or so ago into, you know, what would happen if women's sport just decided to go its own way, which was essentially hypothesizing a little bit around, you know, why should women's sport have to follow the conventions that have existed in men's sport for so long? Why does it have to, you know, make all its money in the exact same way why can't it kind of go down a little bit of a different path and cover out new revenue streams for itself and kind of tap into the things that make it unique um, and I feel like what Ermen and her fellow co-founders and investors have done with Angel City is kind of the first real tangible example we've had of that which is why I think you, you know you can say that her influence is going to extend beyond just you know just that club itself I think it's kind of
1: something that other people are going to be looking at as I mentioned before it be a, a very exciting journey to follow, I think, over the next 12 months and beyond. Talking of celebrity investors uh, and sort of athlete business people as well, um, another name on the list that caught my eye was Rory McIlroy, um, both professional golfer, but also um, sort of co-launcher or co-founder, I guess, of Tomorrow Sports, um, a tech-focused venture um, that I think McIlroy has said um, will lead golf into the digital future. Um, so, Tom, have you been following the Tomorrow Sports journey, especially especially against the backdrop of the Live Golf battles? And do you think McIlroy is an important face of that venture?
0: I think he's not just sort of an important face of, of that venture, but he's kind of like the 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 face of the like I don't want to say golf establishment because that makes it sound like he's not uh, he's sort of kicking back against change, which is clearly not the case as he's like pioneering this tomorrow sports venture but he, he yeah i mean he's sort of in the in the proxy battle between the pga tour and live golf uh he's he's become the sort of the advocate that the pga tour probably really really needed in a way that he maybe was before he was maybe the face of the tour in the way sort of inherited that from tiger woods who coincidentally he also founded tomorrow sports with but yeah, so last year he really sort of came to the fore in defending the PGA Tour against against live golf. So, what well, other tomorrow sports venture is? It's, it's really interesting, and like I, the more you kind of hear about it, the more you feel like this could really be a, a game changer for golf in the way that previous sort of attempts at innovation haven't been. I'm thinking about golf sixes and stuff like that. Yeah, the idea of like a sort of arena based technology kind of infused sort of weekly programming with big names taking part i I kind of see i can definitely see how that would appeal and actually it's the kind of thing that live golf doesn't have like live golf has really failed to innovate beyond the idea of like shorter like shorter tournaments and a shotgun start and all of this kind of stuff that they were talking about and there's not really been any game-changing innovations from that it's still just blokes playing golf Whereas at least this offers something new to a consumer who maybe doesn't want to watch like all four days of a PGA Tour event, but would like to see, even if it's not watching the whole broadcast of a tomorrow sports event or a tomorrow golf event, however they're, they're billing it, um, they'll watch the they'll watch the highlights on YouTube or they'll see the clips on social and engage with those. It really offers something, yeah, a little bit different. And McElroy as the kind of the the face of the PGA Tour, one of the two people driving this, alongside basically the greatest golf player of all time. I think that makes him a more than worthy inclusion in, in this list uh, ahead of what you could have had. I mean, you, like other options for this were Greg Norman, if you wanted to kind of flip the whole script on its head, the guy still driving live at this point, Um, Tiger Woods, the other, the other, the other guy behind tomorrow sports, Um, even some of the other defectors to live golf, right? Like you could have had Dustin Johnson, you could have had Phil Mickelson, but I think as someone that kind of coalesces all of those things into one narrative, Rory McIlroy is really, really that person. And, is, is I feel like he's become a bigger and better like public speaker too during all this. So he's become a real sort of advocate for the way that golf is done
2: currently. I think what was interesting last year was that um, you know I, th- I feel like everyone was always waiting for Jay Monahan's response to what was going on. Um, you know, people always look to the commissioner, don't they, when something like well, let's say like live. There isn't that many examples parallels you can draw in the past but you know when when a threat like that emerges everyone's kind of looking to the commissioner to provide the solutions whereas it almost like a lot of the time because of how often golf tournaments take place and how often players like McElroy are doing big press conferences he was obviously appearing in the public eye a lot more often than Monaghan and it almost felt like the most stoic response from the PGA tour was coming through him so, and I, I think, like I think, in some reports that I read, there was sort of quoting some sources of saying he'd almost become kind of considered by some of the other players as almost like a shadow commissioner in a way. Such was kind of the authority with which he was speaking, and you know, and as I, as I mentioned that word solutions before, you know, he wasn't just simply criticising live golf and kind of the the disruption that it was causing. He was also kind of coming up with solutions in a way, as we mentioned with tomorrow sports. So. So, yeah, it's just kind of reiterating Tom's point there. He kind of, I think he's always been an engaging interviewee. He's always been a really thoughtful figure on the topics that matter in golf. But I think last year he kind of took it to another level. And yeah, as as Tom sort of alluded to there, going into this year, I think he's going to have, you know, an even greater say in the sports future because he does, he is essentially across all of those things. And let's not forget, we've got Ryder Cup happening where he's going to be kind of across all the billboards of that
1: and probably one of the one of the main characters in, in that tournament as well, which always has a lot of eyeballs on it. Well, talking of that, uh, his sort of I think the piece describes it as a personal crusade against Live Golf, which it, it certainly does feel like at the time and he has become that figurehead. Tom, how successful do you think that battle has been. We've seen Live Golf face some pretty significant headwinds towards the back end of 2022. Um, their chief operating officer resigned amid some some concerns about the tour's commercial viability moving forward. Do you see that maybe being the first step towards Live Golf's demise? Particularly as the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia seems to expand its sporting portfolio all the time and is less reliant on things like Live Golf to make its statements.
0: Yeah, I think that last bit actually George is really interesting. So the, the it's obviously having far more success with some of its other uh, its other projects compared to this one. Loads me to say, but Newcastle United, uh, a, like a, an ad, a really good advertisement for like PIF investment, uh, as is the sort of success of what they've been doing in in boxing in, in hosting those events too. Motorsport, I mean, Saudi Arabia now has its own Formula One Grand Prix. It's got its own formula e regular stop off it's got stops off in extreme e all of those things seem to be bearing fruit much quicker than live golf which really is starting to look a bit like the ugly stepsister of all of those other sports investments like you're right there's no there's no rights deal there's no commercial deals it's just lost its chief operating officer who was the guy who's going to be tasked with with monetizing it for whatever that means and they've got their big court case coming up and that chief operating officer was going to be a part of and actually now he's not on the payroll at live golf will he still t- take the same views as he as he did previously in advocating for live golf in the same way i thought i feel like that's a question that's definitely um up in the air so it feels to me as if unless there are some really really major defections again which is what live golf relied on a lot last year and they Definitely pulled off some big ones, like Cam Smith. It was a it was a major coup, I think. um Unless it kind of can keep that train going, which has stalled slightly, uh, certainly, and stalled as well at a point when there's no PGA Tour events. Like there hasn't really been any PGA, PGA Tour interest in the sort of last quarter of the year, uh, and now it swings back into gear again. So, at a time when it could have been striking, I feel like Live Golf, which again hasn't even really confirmed its full calendar for next year, it's stuttering slightly. So. Um, yeah, I, I think maybe we're seeing a, a tide turn. I don't want to like, I don't want to make a massively bold prediction because I've done that already, and we're going to do that in another part of the pod, I think. But it definitely seems to be the narrative at the moment, anyway. That Live Golf is, yeah, not perhaps the best performing in terms of those uh, the P- PIF investments, and that like, if there's no, there's been no reports of this, there's been no murmurings out of this out of Saudi Arabia that it wants to pull the plug. But if there was going to be one, you'd look at that and say, like, well you're spending a lot of money and getting next to nothing out of it so it, it, it's, it sort of makes, makes sense if that was the one that was to go but who knows like it's a bottomless pit of cash so does it really matter did the saudis care only
1: time will tell certainly another one to keep an eye on over the next 12 months or so well one story that's been bubbling away uh for quite some time over the past year and definitely looks at to, to be an interesting part of 2023 is the re, re-entry or the re-emergence of big big technology, big Silicon Valley companies into the world of live rights, um, particularly in the US. And another name that's on this list is uh, James DiLorenzo, um, who's head of sports, the video business of at Apple. Apple, of course, um, striking some major deals with the MLS and the MLB this year. So firstly, Sam, can you give us a bit of a overview into some of those deals that have been struck and why that marks a significant moment people have obviously been waiting for apple to enter the live sports
2: streaming space for quite a long time um and it finally did so last year perhaps later than a lot of people had anticipated perhaps later than a lot of rights holders had maybe hoped but it did so in a pretty big way initially you know, the MLB deal was only for a small package of games in, in certain territories. So that was kind of seen as it dipping its toe in the water a little bit. But obviously that deal with, with Major League Soccer that was announced later in the year, you know, a 10-year, two billion I think it was $2 billion global partnership seemed really, really significant at the time. And obviously it's going to be very significant moving forward. So obviously going into 2023 now will be the first year of that partnership. It will be interesting to see how it fares, you know, obviously it's a more considerable undertaking than that MLB than that MLB agreement I think it's the first time that you've seen a, a major league sort of put all of its games on on one platform in in that kind of way and and obviously de Lorenzo is going to be playing a pretty big part in that He's actually you know he's not really someone you hear from a lot um interestingly, he joined Apple, I think it was a couple of years ago from Amazon where he was he was heading up their sports division, so you know another company who at the time was just getting into into live streaming, so kind of perhaps having had an impact there, he went to do, he went over to do the same thing at apple but you know it's, it's it's never been a company that rushes into things. it's pretty considered in its moves um and I think that's kind of what you've seen with MLS it kind of stepped in at a fairly opportune moment. When the league was perhaps struggling to to garner interest from elsewhere, and it was a deal that very much suits Apple, you know that long term agreement. It's not it's not that considerable an outlay for for a company of Apple's size. But yeah, just going back to Di Lorenzo, obviously you don't hear much from him in the public space. Kind of it feels like he likes to do his business pretty quietly, which is seems pretty suited to to a company like Apple. So it'd be interesting to see how they get on with the start of that MLS deal, but also to see whether you know, there's more being done this year on the back of it. I mentioned the NWSL before, their rights are up for grabs. I don't know, it would perhaps make sense to position those two flagship North American soccer properties on the same platform together. Might represent an opportunity, we'll see. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see if it was kind of, you know, MLS, MLB was sort of opportune experimental moments or or whether it was just kind of the start of, of the company investing in, in major sports rights. I kind of think that,
0: the projection for apple was that they were also going to take that nfl sunday ticket package and that didn't happen ended up going to youtube google at the at the end of the year and the kind of the sense that i got from from that and how the the reporting was around that subject was that basically the nfl couldn't find a way to make that to make that sunday ticket package work for their product um and while we're talking about James DiLorenzo, like a kind of key quote on that was from Eddie Q, someone we previously discussed on this podcast, also in that sports team at Apple, who said they're not interested in buying sports rights. They want to buy up, like basically, kind of packages of things that their customers are going to be interested in. And it, I got the sense with the, with the NFL that they wanted more than the NFL was willing to give and what they what what apple wanted was something like mls where they've got ultimate flexibility over over the property that they're working with um so i think yeah in terms of influence nwsl is a really good a really really interesting proposition because that again it's completely open to um having something like bespoke made for apple where they get the opportunity to do basically kind of what they want to do with it. Like there's so many facets to that MLS agreement, which are interesting. Like there's plugins with season ticket holders, um, how it works globally, how it works within Apple TV itself. So many touch points that Apple can use across its whole ecosystem that I think like we're going to see maybe a market shift in terms of how properties approach working with them. Cause like, if they're, they're able to say, look, we don't need to be part of the NFL uh, and let's face it like the NFL probably would have got more out of that than out of apple than apple would have got out of the nfl which is remarkable when you consider when you consider a business like the nfl that will be that'll be for me i think where that influence comes in it's like shaping the kinds of deals that the properties are going to do with with that uh yeah with a tech giant
1: and speaking of those tech giants tom you mentioned the sunday night ticket um, looking like it was going to go Apple's way, but actually ended up um, going to YouTube under the Google parent. And we've seen Amazon uh, Amazon Prime making some pretty significant moves from this season with uh, Thursday night football as well. Why now for these big tech companies to be investing uh, pretty heavily into live sports rights? Big question.
0: Um, but I think probably just because we're seeing the the technology Catch up with where those properties need to be, so the NFL now knows that it can get the reach it wants for its games via Amazon and via YouTube in the way that it wouldn't have done uh, in a previous cycle, wouldn't even done maybe two or three years ago. Um, and for like a property like that, it's really big, um, and it just seems to me like it's kind of at that inflection point where consumers are starting to come towards those products in the way that they weren't previously. It's like it's just less of a risk now. And also, like they create, as I said before, like for for Apple, like they create more touch points within their business. So it gives them access to a different kind of user, which they haven't really previously gone for before. So like Apple really hasn't done anything in sports until this year. It's had various plugins with Nike around like it's Nike plus system, like in the wearable space, but it's rarely ever just it's, sports haven't really been a part of it there's really there's not even been like a kind of apple news add-on for sports until this year like that's that's all part of things that were rolled out so yeah i mean like, an interesting kind of element of this today was a report around amazon set to launch a standalone prime video sports app right like because they've got all these different rights contracts now that they want to boost the discoverability of those and we're probably going to see a next phase for all of these big tech companies coming into uh yeah coming into sports and how they position themselves differently because i don't think that and they probably know this too that they can that they can just um chuck it in with the rest of the, the rest of the content that they offer
2: it just becomes the ultimate marketing tool for these big tech companies doesn't it it's not the the live sport isn't the core element of their business but it as you were saying Tom, it drives people to all those other elements of what they offer you know whether it's apple through sport being able to bring people into its apple plus streaming ecosystem you know through its sponsorship of the Super Bowl now being able to add additional exposure for Apple Music even just by you know getting some getting people into view few MLS games perhaps they're going to start engaging with the various Apple products that they have. Amazon similarly you know nfl premier league games all of those things contribute to bring people into its wider ecosystem where they're going to go on to engage with you know its commerce its e-commerce platform and everything else it has to offer so i think yeah as tom was saying there um i think the question of why now george is kind of you know it's kind of it's it's just in line with those with the evolution of those companies from kind of what they started out as sort of their, as their core business offering and various expand and various other business areas that they're expanding into it just kind of it, it's kind of a natural evolution of that I think it's,
1: especially when you put that into context with someone like Reed Hastings, um, CEO of Netflix talking about them being in the money making business rather than necessarily like the content business or whatever it might be. So when they look at live rights acquisitions, they don't see a way in which they can successfully turn a profit. Um, compared to the outlay but when you look at an Amazon Prime for instance with a significant e-commerce offering there's obviously opportunities for cross-platform monetization so Sam with your sponsorship hat on do you see that being a really exciting opportunities for um, for brands and and businesses that can monetize their products directly through a service like Amazon Prime where they can sort of almost directly have a one-stop shop platform where they can both sell their products and also advertise it? they've obviously got that x-ray
2: feature on on amazon and various integrations that they can do um so it would make sense if um further down the line they were to sort of integrate brands into that and it was something that you could you know click on the screen and follow through to to purchase and i think you know you, you see that across a lot of platforms already anyway um in the way that sports organizations are, are integrating their partners into posts on on social media for example and so i think that's kind of a natural next step as well and just in terms of Companies like Amazon have advertising tiers now as well, so it provides another opportunity for brands to advertise on the platform that isn't necessarily linear TV, and it gives them opportunity to reach an audience that they maybe maybe haven't been, you know, through traditional means of consumption.
1: Once again, it'll be uh, another very interesting journey to track over the next twelve months, and um, I certainly wouldn't be surprised to see some of those businesses entering into the European rights markets as well um, more strongly. Well I could just looking through the list of names there are plenty of people that would be great to discuss but in the interest of time I think we'll leave it there for the the 10 influencers for 2023 please do visit the sportspromedia.com website where you can check out the full list of 10 and uh, the businesses they represent and some of the interesting stories they're going to have to tell over the next year or so. Now before I leave you, gents. I know you have both been making your predictions for the year ahead. So whilst you've been gazing into that crystal ball, I wanted to quiz you on them. So Sam, I'm going to start with you. Um, One of yours was that you will see rights rights holders facing increased competition um, to get their sponsorship uh, money, especially particularly within a recessionary environment. So can you walk me through that a little bit more?
2: Yeah, so... Yeah, obviously... um... We're all living, we're feeling the pinch, George, aren't we? Um, there is a kind of cost of living crisis happening, and it's it's affecting everyone. It's affecting individual people. It's it's uh, affecting businesses. So, you might have brands that have traditionally sponsored sport kind of reconsidering reconsidering their marketing budgets, reconsidering where they where they put their money. And I think in the last couple of years, that's probably been happening anyway. In the wake of COVID, you've maybe seen uh, certain brands double down on the partnerships that they have already which is probably why we saw a, prolifer- a proliferation of, you know, crypto partnerships, isn't it, really was um, as a way for rights holders to kind of plug that revenue gap in the wake of the pandemic. That revenue stream isn't necessarily going to dry up, but obviously on the back of what happened at the end of last year with FTX, rights holders, I imagine, are going to tread a little bit more carefully in that space. You know, you look at some of the other companies that have spent big in recent years on sponsorships like Kazoo, for example, they ran into some trouble last year and started to. Withdraw some of their partnerships. So it isn't necessarily that obvious where all the new sponsorship money is going to be coming from. And I think also on top of that you look at kind of the increasing number of options that are available to brands now you know it isn't just those kind of top tier flagship properties anymore brands can pivot a little bit and maybe start to do things a little bit their own way that you know there's there's opportunities in women's sport now as we've as we've mentioned there's there's opportunities in emerging sports like paddle and pickleball which seem to have pretty engaged player bases and you know there's New technologies. We've spoken, you know, one of the people on the ten influencers list, uh, David Bazuki, the chief executive of Roblox. That's another platform where brands are sort of showing up in that space. They might be investing instead in kind of investing some of their marketing budget in, you know, in metaverse platforms. And I think we saw that last year with with Gatorade, who's been a a big spender in sports sponsorship over the years. They kind of pulled out of their NHL partnership and said they were kind of pivoting their sports marketing strategy a little bit and focusing more on women's sports the metaverse you know things that are going to help them reach new audiences so kind of my prediction going into this year amidst all those kind of in that sort of environment is that it is going to be a little bit more difficult for for rights holders to secure those sponsorship bucks yeah competition is going to increase just because of that you know there's there's more options for brands than ever before sport typically has kind of proved itself to be immune to (laughs) recessions in a way you know it's still it's still An excellent way for brands to reach audiences it still provides exposure like very few other entertainment platforms do but i just think over the next 12 months it just might be a little bit more trickier to to secure some of that some of that
1: marketing budget as as brands are maybe tightening their belts a little bit well when it comes to recessions one of the great sort of business clichés is um you know about finding the opportunity from the adversity but one point you made um in that predictions piece that i thought was really interesting was that with marketing budgets tightening and there being less demand for um for these sort of for the property uh, property rights we're going to see a lot more bespoke packages being created between partners and rights holders that deliver longer term value for both parties. Do you think there is a chance that that's almost a blessing in disguise and that we're going to avoid these sort of almost like get rich quick schemes when it comes to like crypto sponsorships that haven't had proper due diligence and that actually you could take a a business like Roblox where you're building an immersive world that delivers longer term value for both parties and we're actually going to see a new era of sponsorship that's a bit more responsible and a little bit more viable in the longer term.
2: Yeah, I think so. I feel like it was sort of happening a little bit already. Um you know, I think there are so many more assets for rights holders to sell now it isn't just, you know, front of shirt sponsorship it isn't just some space on a billboard you know they have loads of digital assets that they can sell now um there are community elements that you can that you'd be able to build into packages now you you go back to the angel city conversation you know you can go out to a partner that wants to i don't know have has a have a specific impact in the community through a certain csr initiative that they're running you know you build that into your figure out how you can work on promoting that together and and identifying sort of how you can how you can measure that together and sort of integrate purpose into those partnerships so i think while you know it is going to be a challenge for rights holders there are those that adapt by sort of going out with those more bespoke packages are the ones that are going to kind of prosper a little bit more through this period you know not necessarily just trying to sell a specific piece of inventory but sitting down at the table with these brands and figuring out what is most valuable to them whether it's you know social across social media or
1: or wherever else it is whether it's in community initiatives i think that's kind of
2: going to be the key over the next
1: 12 months tom i also wanted to, to pick your brains on your own uh, prediction uh, you made a, a couple really all based around some of the broadcast rights deals that are soon to take place um over over the next 12 months or so so walk me through some of those i know the nba the wsl um, and the role of Warner Brothers Discovery um, featured quite a bit in there. So, uh, can you give me an overview of some of yours?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably easier to just go into to the the main player for for 2023, which I think is going to be Warner Brothers Discovery. The reason being, they've got um, they're going to have a role in two of what will be the biggest deals done this year the NBA deal in America, the domestic rights package there, and also wow. the sort of pan-European Olympics deal, which um, has been pending for quite a while. And the, the the sort of request proposals went out early last year, but we've heard nothing back since. And, and given sort of Warner Brothers' Discovery's move since the merger, uh, the most recent example being sort of the closure of... Um, golf tv that streaming platform and also sort of as we discovered earlier this week the update regarding the sort of the broader pga tour rights deal too that being scaled back uh, it'd be interesting to see what they decide to do with the olympics like they've had a kind of but the metrics suggest they've had a fairly decent run with it but there's also been pushback from certainly in the uk where viewers have been sort of put off or uh, sort of upset that um the bbc uh the public service broadcaster here hasn't had the same level of access that it did under that it did previously before warner brothers picked up that big old 1.3 billion rights deal to take the the i think it was like four four games two summer two winter um back in 2015 so yeah the, the last of those will be paris 2024 and then the next the, the, the contract up for right now is um what goes on in the future. So. Yeah, what what, what Warner Brothers decides to do with that will shape a lot of the broadcast space in Europe, especially for a couple of a couple of games, Olympic games cycles, and then also the what happens with the NBA. I mean, the NBA uh, is the next major league up, I guess, when it comes to the the US rights conversation. Um, David Zaslav has already been trying to play down some of the. Uh, the, the expectations with regards to what Warner Brothers might be doing there. Obviously, they own Turner, who are produced probably what is the most popular basketball broadcast in the States, out there, outside, out there at Atlanta Studios. So it, it'll be a kind of a real turning point and a couple of major things for them. So NBA and and Olympics. Interesting kind of element on both of those is how they divvy up their that, that content or how they choose to try and allocate that content across the various different platforms that they've got so obviously they've got the very popular hbo max in america they've got discovery plus which has been growing uh, in europe Eurosport brand too similarly they've also got Turner and Bleacher Report and all of these kind of things that have relied on sports content to, to build out their sort of offerings in the last few years too so there's a lot there's a lot to play with I haven't even mentioned BT Sport but that's kind of I feel like a bit separate to this conversation um, there's just so much going on with Warner Bros Discovery I feel like they've got a lot on their plate coming up in the next year um, and my prediction is sort of less around what they'll actually do but the fact that they'll be shaping the conversation
1: yeah when we heard from Andrew Giorgio at the OTT summit um, last year in, in Madrid it, it certainly did tease up a few potential big moves um, for the year ahead well I'll definitely be looping back to you both uh, later in the year to see how well those predictions have tracked
2: thankfully mine is less measurable whereas Tom's probably is so maybe we just leave <laughs> that with Tom and then get him back in that
1: reindeer <laughs> outfit <laughs> a savvy move Um well, gents, it's great to be back in the in the podcasting hot seat. Uh, and of course, no two men that I'd rather be doing it with than you. So thank you very much uh, for joining me for the first podcast of the year. And looking forward to many more as the months progress.
0: Cheers, George. Good to be back, mate.
1: Cheers, chaps. Thanks for having me. We'll see you next week.
0: Thanks, all.